2: Hello, I'm Dana Stevens. Welcome to the Slate Culture Gab Fest Sandman vs. Predator edition. Today is Wednesday, August 24th, and today we will be talking about The Sandman, a 10-episode Netflix series that is an adaptation of the legendary comic book series written by fantasy novelist Neil Gaiman. We'll also attempt to account for the surprise runaway success of Prey, the fifth installment in the now 35-year-old Predator franchise, which has been taking Hulu by storm and also charming the pants off of critics. We'll talk about why. And finally, who is Colleen Hoover? If you follow culture on TikTok, you may know the answer. She's a wildly best-selling author working in all kinds of different pop genres. Right now, she has three of the five top books on the New York Times bestsellers list. Slate book critic Laura Miller will clue us in on the mystery of Coho, as she's known by her hordes of passionate fans. Joining me this week... In person, in studio, is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hi, Dana. So nice to see you. Yeah, it's the so flesh. great to see you in the flesh, face-to-face, snacking on snacks together. I feel like that's going to bring extra energy to this week's conversation. And I wish our third conversant could be here in the room with us, too. We're talking to Laura Miller, Slate's beloved book critic. Hey, Laura. Laura.
1: I'm so delighted to be talking to you guys, although it's hard for me to wish to be in New York in August. (laughs) Confirm. (laughs) Stay in Maine. We (laughs) wish we could come to you in Maine. So do I.
2: All right, now that we are all convened, onto our first topic. The revered fantasy novelist Neil Gaiman has said that in his opinion, his finest accomplishment is the DC comic book series The Sandman, which he wrote over a period of seven years from 1989 to 1986. The series tells the story of Dream, sometimes called Morpheus, a being who is the personification of the human capacity to create dream worlds, we can discuss exactly what he is personifying, but he seems to be essentially an allegorical figure of dreaming itself. He's, He's a- got great hair, whatever he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think think neuromantics 80s bands. Dream siblings, if you want to get a sense of his allegorical world, include destiny, death, desire, and delirium. And over the course of the comic's epic storyline, it ran to 75 issues. Dream will battle Lucifer in hell and attempt to reclaim the magical tools stolen from him by a series of mortal foes. The Sandman has been adapted numerous times, but never before with Neil Gaiman's involvement and never before to his satisfaction. Now a 10-episode Netflix series has dropped that adapts at least a part of this massive comic series. Let's listen to a clip from relatively early in the show. What you will hear here is Dream, the character played by Tom Sturridge, speaking with a character named Lucien, played by Vivian Akiumpang. At this moment, Dream is returning to his magical realm after having been kidnapped for over 100 years by a British magus and a would-be thief of his secrets.
0: My lord, you are the Dreaming. The dreaming is you. With you gone as long as you were, the realm began to decay and crumble.
3: And the residents?
1: The palace staff?
0: I'm afraid most have gone. Gone? Some went looking for you. And the others? They thought perhaps you'd grown weary of your duties, and... What?
3: Abandoned them. Had they so little faith in me?
2: Laura, I'm going to start with you because you were the one who wanted us to talk about The Sandman. You're a huge fan of the original comic series. I definitely want you to talk about that and the history of its adaptation, and then tell us what you think of this this new adaptation. Get us started.
1: Okay, so this comic book series was incredibly groundbreaking. There, there had been adult comics before Sandman, but... Um, they were more of a kind of a underground cult- counterculture thing, and this this was like the sort of lead product of a imprint of DC Comics called Vertigo, and it had a look and a feel and a type of story that was very different from from their other comics. In part because there was more violence and sex and disturbing content, but also because it had this sort of dense, arty quality. Um, it brought all kinds of people who had been maybe less interested in the form into, you know, being interested in it, in it being fans. And it, it earned Gaiman a, a huge fan base that helped him launch his career now as a primarily as a novelist. Um, but it was difficult to adapt because it was a kind of a tableau-based storytelling format. You know, it, it, there were different artists. Uh, many of them with really striking, stylish, original uh, images that they produced. And this had a sort of weird mythic quality. People like to say that superheroes are the sort of myths of our time. But there's a style of storytelling that is very brisk and action-based and with with superheroes and this is different this kind of goes back more to myth and legend and fable and um, and it was one of the few graphic novels when it was published in graphic novel form to make the New York Times bestseller list.
2: All right. That establishes how unusual the comic was in the first place. Why do you think there has been so much to do about the difficulty of adapting it over the years? I mean, given that comic books are now one of our major sources of material for all of pop culture, what is it about this one that made it so unadaptable? Do you think it is just the the abstract nature of the ideas that it deals in?
1: Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, the characters, the, the sort of running characters are literally allegorical. He represents dreams. His sister is deaf. He's got another relative, a sibling of indeterminate gender who represents desire. Um, So they are both characters, and they also embody a kind of a a bigger idea or a force, let's say, in in living things. And and not just humans, but living things in general. And um, that quality, and also the fact that as a central character, he, he represents something eternal. These, this group of siblings are called the endless. They don't end unlike other gods and, and spirits. And so they, you know, they're, they're not characters that are necessarily really easy to engage with and the way to make it work, which I think this series might be moving towards if they get more episodes is, is a sort of, um, almost like a Twilight Zone sort of thing. But this would be like like Twilight Zone if the Rod Serling character was actually had his own storyline. It wasn't super eventful. And so, um, so they preside over the affairs of different mortals and have interactions with them. But, I mean, you have the problem that you always have with sort of mythic characters. Like um, Apollo, he doesn't change a lot. <laughs> Neither does Athena or Zeus or... Are, are Woden or, are, you know, most gods in in mythologies. And so that kind of limits the dramatic potential of that character. Although Damon does have him change a little bit in the Sandman series.
2: Yeah, the Twilight Zone comparison is interesting also, because at least as I've experienced it so far, and I've seen now six out of the 10 episodes, this Netflix series seems to be It has at least one bottle episode and it seems in general to be creating a self-standing story with each episode visiting a different world that sometimes has nothing to do with the world of the previous episode. Julia, I'm going to jump to you and ask you, uh, first, do you have any background with this material at all? And secondly, how did the Netflix series strike you?
0: It's interesting that the the actor who plays the magus who traps dream in the first episode is the is charles dance the actor who played uh, the nefarious tywin lannister in game of thrones because i spent my time watching this series thinking about the success of that adaptation of a very popular book series and feeling just kind of utterly held at arm's length by this one um it's beautiful it's intriguing It feels like, wow, yes, that book has been on my list of books to read for a decade, and it remains there and maybe punched up a couple notches. Like, okay, these are really interesting ideas that are being explored, etc. But it's really just unclear who you're supposed to latch on to as a character or human or entry point or persona in this opening set of of episodes. And, um, you know, obviously, I I don't know that the Game of Thrones comparison is that useful. That's like, not my favorite show. I don't think that show is the best show in the world. But you, in terms of being very comfortable pulling you into a deeply realized world through the entry point of very, very specific humans who are compelling and pleasurable to spend time with. um, This felt more like... It was in a snow globe, kind of like a Tim Burton snow globe of, like, gothic beauty and interesting ideas. But, you know, I mean, you can hear it in that clip. Lord, the world began to crumble. You know, it's like, what? who, who talks that? Like, c- 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 there's no crackle. There's no life. There's no specificity. Like, I don't know. It. It. it I do think Tom Sturridge, as Morpheus begins to seem vulnerable or concerned, or like not quite sure how he should carry himself and his new powerless self and and, you know, it b- begins to take take some life. But I found myself just wishing that the whole thing had a very different entry point because I, it I did not feel lured in to the story.
2: I've read a few different reviews that have said something that I very strongly agree with, which is that, the first episode of this is by far the worst. And I say this in part because I know the person I watched that episode with is going to be listening to this show saying, that was the worst show I've ever seen. (laughs) And he walked out saying, I'm not pursuing this any further because the first episode does a couple of things that aren't very smart. For one thing it imprisons Tom Sturridge in a glass cage for the entire episode and doesn't let him speak a word. He's the protagonist of the show, who, Laura, as you say, we already have this problem connecting to because he's this highly allegorical figure who doesn't change, who's sort of godlike and remote and brooding. And the show then compounds that problem by putting him in a cage and not letting him speak for the entire first episode. So he's just kind of a victim and a piece, a prop, essentially a piece of scenery. And Everyone else who's important in that first episode who we're trying to maybe connect with or make our protagonists or our villains is gone by the end of the first episode. And we're stuck with the guy who never said anything and never changes that that really has makes this show have trouble getting a uh, kicked off and and acquiring any sense of life. But it really is worth sticking around for a few episodes if you're at all interested in the ideas and the subject matter it's trying to deal with. Because although, Laura, this show does continue to have that problem of being about abstract ideas and this kind of huge cosmology that's a little bit hard to personify, it does go to some really interesting places idea-wise. And when David Thewlis enters the scene, always happy to see David Thewlis anywhere, suddenly we have a really interesting villain slash is he really a villain? Is he crazy? Are we sorry for him? And I won't give up, give away too much about his character, but he is one of the people who has some of these magical tools and um and items that Dream is trying to get back in order to reestablish his dominion. And I feel like things get really interesting around when David Thewlis shows up, but I don't think that that's until maybe episode
1: three. So you do get he- more human characters that you can latch onto towards the end. I think The problem with that opener, which is less of a problem with the comic book, because you're mostly just curious what's going on in the comic book and racing through the pages to sort of find out what's going on in the world and who this guy is, is that you're not attached to Dream and his kingdom and all of the characters who depend on him and his the world that they call the dreaming, which is a little bit like the sort of Aboriginal idea of a whole separate reality, where which is a, the dreaming space, you're not attached to that because you start the narrative when it's lost, and so you you you're not like oh I can't wait till he gets back I can't wait till he gets back you're still just thinking who is this guy
0: right What is the dreaming Why does it matter I mean there's sort of just a stakes yeah. stakes problem of like. Oh, dear Lord, your skull crumbled and everyone turned away from you. But, like, why did it matter that isn't it just imaginary? Yeah. Yeah. Who, yeah. yeah. And in addition to that, there was a real bird fail or possibly just my ignorance of European birding showing. But there's some kind of, like, pied crow situation bird that plays a role in this episode that's referred to as a raven. And Yeah. I don't think there are ravens with big white patches. It looked more like a pied crow or a magpie. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Bird Culture Fest Dorati. But I was just like, can we get no respect? That's not a fucking <laughs> raven either. <laughs> um, perhaps it's a raven I'm unaware of. I did a light, some light raven googling and was unable to find a raven that resembled the bird that features prominently and is referred to as a raven in this episode. <laughs>
2: Wait till you meet the one voiced by Patton Oswalt. I think that's really outside the ornithological
0: I, canon. <laughs> I, I saw that one and that one looks like a raven and I will accept it's ravenhood. <laughs> and it also looks different than the other raven.
1: I did, I would urge people to continue watching this if they're at all intrigued by it because it it, it took the the comic a little while to catch its its rhythm and its purpose. It sort of started out as more of a horror comic, and then it became much more of this kind of mythical fantasy um, series. And I'm like a lot of fans of it. I'm very excited about the Midsummer Night Dream themed episode, if they end up making it, which is about how a kind of court of fairies gets involved with these traveling Shakespearean players. And it's very funny and Charming and delightful in the in the comics. So um, so you know, I would say persist if if it if it at all appeals to you, but I can understand why it might not, although it does have many, many legions of fans.
2: All right. Well, you can decide for yourself by viewing all 10 episodes of the Sandman, which are currently available on Netflix. And when you have, please write us and tell us what you thought at culturefest at slate.com. All right, moving on. Apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. All right, we have a few items of business to talk about. Julia, what have we got?
0: The only thing on our list for today is to talk about our Slate Plus segment. We had a question from listener Emma who wanted to know, if you were able to bring two celebrities from very disparate fields into conversation, who would they be and how would you prompt their dialogue? In her email, Emma points to an example where The Guardian arranged a conversation between Brian Cox, the actor, and Brian Cox, the particle physicist. So she says we get bonus points if the two people share the same name. That is a high degree of difficulty. You must be a Slate Plus member to listen and figure out whether we meet the bar. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And members get unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus.
2: On its release on the Hulu streaming service in early August, Prey, the fifth installment in an action franchise that now dates back to 1987 and Arnold Schwarzenegger days, surprised everyone by rapidly becoming the most successful Hulu original film or TV show yet to be released, as well as the most critically acclaimed film in the Predator canon, with admirers that include Oscar-winning director Barry Jenkins of Moonlight, who called it a lean, mean, impressive bit of filmmaking. What is it about this prequel set nearly 300 years in the past in the world of Comanche hunters on the Northern Plains, that has revived excitement in a franchise that has not felt new since Arnold Schwarzenegger was an A list movie star. It's also worth mentioning that the director is Dan Trachtenberg, who has previously directed a movie in a long standing franchise that has nonetheless a fresh and original feel, which is 10 Cloverfield Lane, part of the Cloverfield series, which I think did something really, really different in a similar way that this does. Female protagonist, small scale. Um, intense in without being bloated let's kick off our prey conversation by listening to a clip from the movie here you will hear the comanche tribe celebrating a successful hunt while naru the main character played by amber mid-thunder fears that there is something more dangerous than whatever they were hunting lurking nearby the first voice you will hear in this clip is from dakota beavers the actor playing tabe naru's older brother naru where are you going
0: you did it!
1: No. We didn't do it. What do you think left those tracks? And skinned that snake, and before I fell, I saw lightning in the trees. Daru. There's something else out there.
2: And if there is, I'll get it.
1: We need to go back out. Far, beyond the ridge line. No. Okay, well, I'll hunt alone if I have to. You can't. Do I need your permission, War Chief?
0: It's not about permission. You can't. I I had to carry you back. I can hunt. You're right. We didn't do it. I did.
2: All right, Julia, I'm going to start with you here. Uh, I don't know if you have any feelings about the Predator franchise in general, if you care whether it's being revived successfully or not, but... To me, this movie, Prey, could have stood completely alone with the Predator franchise never having existed as a really solid, small, quick, fast-moving action thriller. I thought it was great, especially the first hour or so before it, to some degree, devolved into standard action. Um, really, really intriguing use of a young female protagonist from native culture that you almost never see in any sort of movie, much less a
0: mainstream action thriller. What about you? Did you like Prey? I loved it. I've never seen a single Predator movie and don't feel like I ever need to. (laughs) But this was great. (laughs) Like, I didn't want to know more about the Predator or the mythos of the Predator or whatever. Um, But just as a piece of modern filmmaking that navigates the current prerogatives of Hollywood, right? Make something based on existing IP. Make something that... Centers a type of voice or an ethnicity of of actor that typically haven't had central roles in Hollywood productions. Make something interesting, make something uh, attractive to modern film goers. Make something that uses current filmmaking technology in service of beauty and story as opposed to like gray pixelated muck which is like so much of what that technology is often used towards what a great movie like the action choreography is clear and beautiful and surprising i have not yet seen someone find refuge in a beaver dam and now i have and i'm glad it was great <laughs> like you know um the the sort of there's a series of kind of food chain type animal attacks um, that I think are meant to uh, allegorize the the predator-prey, you know, dyad in life and in the world as we think about this new alien predator. And um, they're kind of beautifully done. And then there's all these scenes where an invisible creature, the predator, is chasing or fighting things. And those are striking. I mean, I really liked this movie and I don't like this kind of movie so much so that I've never been moved to click up or attend any kind of Predator movie before. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. I mean, the, I also find it surprising and heartening that it's seems like it's a hit. I mean, these streaming numbers are always a little fuzzy, gauzy, juji like, you know, I what what are the other Hulu originals that you're comparing it to? Like, OK, was more popular than The Handmaid's Tale. All right. Um, but still... I would be concerned that this is like a predator installment that film critics love, but that, you know, the fanboys who don't always like it when um, revered franchises are reinvented with, you know, women protagonists, for example, um, seem to have liked it too. And it seems to have found an audience like, I don't know, it feels like a minor summer culture miracle.
2: Yeah, I have to say I did not expect in my notes to a movie in the Predator franchise to be putting such references as Terence Malick's The New World, mm-hmm. another movie about, you know, the, the, the colliding of, of – Indigenous culture and European culture, or Chloe Zhao's film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which takes place on a reservation and uses nature, I think, in a somewhat similar way to this movie, a lot of pictorial beauty. I did not expect those to be my references for Prey, but I was really, really happy to be making those notes. Laura, what about you? Did you also fall for this movie like we did?
1: I did like it a lot. Um, I actually also saw the original Predator when it came out and enjoyed that very much. Although I haven't felt the need to revisit it, so it's more the kind of movie that I I would see. But then I didn't. I, I might have seen one or two of the sequels. I have to admit I have never delved into the Predator versus Alien series, um, which seemed a little bit oh you know <laughs> a little bit much. I didn't really want those two. Uh, two storylines to collide. Um, I like that this was tight, that it was beautifully photographed. The cinematography is incredible. The the use, as Dana said, of the um, natural settings and the, the way that it sort of centered in the Native American life, so that first we see the intrusion of the predator into the sort of safe continuity of the world that Nauru lives in. And then later, these French trappers come. And by that point, we're fully invested in Naru and her, you know, quest to prove that she's a good hunter, and then eventually her quest to, to eliminate the predator, which she correctly perceives as a huge threat to her people, and, and how alien the Europeans are made to seem, how grotesque and incomprehensible and alien they are which I thought was a great not overdone accomplishment of, of the movie to try to invest viewers in a different point of view. I was a little bit not so keen on the whole um, here's a story of a girl who wants to do a man's job, because in it's actually overly common in historical fiction, but maybe but I realize it's probably not so common in, in action movies. And I, I shouldn't be like rolling my eyes at it. Yeah, I,
2: I I wondered about that as I was watching because it is a familiar trope in the kind of YA universe, right? She is in yeah, some sense yeah. the, um, the the Katniss Everdeen of the Comanche she's, tribe. She's
0: Joe. I mean, none of the you know there is no female protagonist of historical fiction or even just historical work that is not on some level like a tomboy who chafes against the strictures of her gender situation,
2: right? Or a Joan of Arc kind of figure, right? This this teen girl who is the only one who sees the danger and is the only one able to lead the army which has, I think, led some to argue that she's something of a Mary Sue character because she is manages to get out of situations that seem logically like a single human should not be able to get out of. But that seems like it must also be true of Schwarzenegger in the original and all of the Danny Glover, all the various predator fighters who came after, right? I mean, that is just what a hero of an action franchise does. There, there's a yes. slight
0: thing here where they do They establish with a lot of clarity that she's like still developing her huntress skills. Um, and, you know, really has to work up the confidence to be a good hunter. But then about two thirds of the way through the film, she starts fighting people and she's just like a ninja fighter from the jump. It's like her fighting skills far surpass her hunting skills. And you're like, oh, they never showed us. that. I'm like, oh, OK, I guess you do have to kind of take that with a, a grain of salt, I think.
1: she's mostly fighting men that she's really mad at. So maybe it's just her motivation is <laughs> so much stronger at that point. Um It's just great that it's so short, too, you know, that it's not this bloated thing full of a lot of mythology and backstories about the predators and a lot of ridiculous information that you don't care about. It's just a very clear storyline
2: Yeah, I really, I did admire how stripped down the story was. It's just about 90 minutes running time. There's no subplot, as you mentioned, right? There's not really a lot of world building at the beginning. We're just plunged right into the life of this Comanche tribe. And something that really struck me, especially in the first hour or so of the film, is the use of silence. You know, I mean, you really don't often see an action movie that has any scenes that aren't heavily scored with exciting music and, you know, packed with expository dialogue. And the idea that we would just watch people living their lives and
0: build the world that way seemed really refreshing. I also liked, there were a few reviews that suggested that perhaps the film didn't do enough with or have enough to say about the, you know, implicit parallel between the rapacious alien from the sky and the bloody rapacious, you know, French, Trappers, and I would just argue the exact opposite. Like I don't think there needed to be an explanatory or expository scene or a bunch of finger wagging. And and even though the trappers are presented as kind of brutal and cruel and you know aliens in their own right, they're also a varied group with you know different differing humanities and uh, you know like that they're it's it's not too broad a brush. And the parallel is nicely framed and planted for the audience to absorb and make of what they will in a way that seemed smart and potent rather than underbaked.
2: Yeah, it's not like you have to go out of your way to make the predator look like a bad colonizing force. He's a giant, invisible, xenomorph lizard man. <laughs> and just the idea of juxtaposing a historical Epic that we don't usually see in science fiction movies with a science fiction a familiar science fiction villain was in itself fun, and I, I saw it lead to a lot of speculation on
0: social media about other historical periods that you could transplant the predator into and what you could do with that. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for that series. If that's where IP will take us, I'm happy. And I will say, I mean, I get the the difficulty of adapting the Sandman, but just in terms of the economy with which it pulls someone who has no investment in the overall mythology into the story by giving you a person to care about whose motivations are clear, whose life is visually interesting and whose, whose like storyline you become invested in it's like exhibit A, pray yes, <laughs> exhibit B, sandman, no. Like just storytelling mechanics, adaptation mechanics. It was really interesting to juxtapose these two.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The simplicity takes this a really, really long way. And also I will say that the all-Native cast and the fact that there was a Comanche advisor on the scenes gives the entire thing a not over-researched and not preachy, but just a, a sense of a precise historical detail that I really appreciated. All right. Well, all three of us give this one a strong recommendation. It's Prey and it's streaming right now on Hulu.
3: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FD journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, moving
2: on to our next topic. This has been the summer of Colleen Hoover, writes Slate's book critic Laura Miller. As she goes on to point out, that season was preceded by a... Winter of Colleen Hoover and Autumn of Colleen Hoover. For several years now, Colleen Hoover has been dominating bestseller lists, and right now three of the top five books on the NYT bestseller list are written by this Texas-based novelist. Koho, as she is known to her legions of passionate fans on TikTok and Bookstagram and elsewhere, works in all kinds of pop literary genres, from YA to romance to gothic horror. What all her books seem to share in common is the ability to deliver what Laura Miller, in her write-up of Colleen Hoover and Slate, calls feels— Laura, I'm going to hand it over to you because you have been steeping yourself in Colleen Hoover novels, I presume for quite some time, to write up this, this pretty uh, authoritative overview of her career. Um, tell us about, for one thing, the place that Colleen Hoover occupies in the marketplace right now, and also what you think in her writing accounts for that best-selling magic.
1: Okay. Well, Hoover is this 42-year-old former social worker who lives in a pretty small town in Texas. Um she's generally you know if you if you start talking about Colleen Hoover to people who actually know who she is which is it's kind of incredible that someone can have anywhere from 2 to 5 titles on the Whatever bestseller list you happen to be looking at. And yet, like so many people have never heard of her, at least in my own circles. Um, but if you ask someone who knows or who has read some articles about her, they will say that Book Talk, which is the part of TikTok where people discuss and recommend books, is responsible for her sort of massive success. Um, but as people on Book Talk have pointed out, she was. She has always been a really adept user of social media. She knows how to use YouTube. She's Instagram, all of the sort of book friendly social media platforms to promote her titles while at the same time not seeming to be promoting herself. I mean, which is a very tricky skill to have. Um, So she was she was getting bestsellers before TikTok ever came along partly because of her successful use of of YouTube and and Instagram. Um, You know, it's I guess in essence, her books are almost always some kind of romance, but they really are all over the place in terms of the tone. The most famous book of hers, or possibly the most successful, is called It Ends With Us, which is a, a pretty serious book about domestic violence. And then another very popular book of hers is called Verity. And that's sort of like a weird mix of Rebecca and Gone Girl. Like I think of it as what if Jillian Flynn actually were as much of a psychopath as Amazing Amy and Gone Girl and her husband didn't know and her husband was really hot and you were in love with (laughs) her husband. And then, And then they tend to have big twists that are full of like wrenching stories from people's past. I mean, some of of her critics have complained that they are trauma porn. You know, there's often a whole lot made over the fact that someone's mother died or their child died or they suffered some kind of abuse. And that is sort of the organizing principle of their character. Um, But they also have kind of fluffy rom-com repartee. And um, as I mentioned before, there's almost always some kind of crazy twist. So I describe them as the everything bagel of popular fiction, because instead of just focusing on just a nice, fluffy contemporary romance, or just a weird psychological thriller where you don't know if the paralyzed wife is actually really paralyzed, and you're in a big spooky house, or the really serious, wrenching exploration of a painful issue. You just do everything, you know. You have um, a zillion sex scenes. I mean, one of her most popular novels is called Ugly Love, and I estimated that it's at least sixty or seventy percent sex scenes. And then you have the, the tear-jerking ending and then you have the crazy twist. I mean, it's just everything. Everything is in there. Um, and I, I actually, that's probably the secret to her success.
2: Yeah, Laura, here I, I feel like I have to tell my own, unrelated to our topic, Colleen Hoover story, which is that before we even decided to talk about this book. But after I had read you on on Colleen Hoover and Slate, my daughter, for a plane trip we took last week, bought a copy of Ugly Love at the airport, precisely because I think she had heard on TikTok that it was really good. And some of her friends had earnestly pressed upon her this wonderful book that would change her life, Ugly Love. And I have to say, and this is this is my daughter's judgment, not mine, because I've only read a few pages of the book, but she said it was one of the worst books
0: she'd ever tried to read. <laughs>
2: <laughs> she abandoned it about, I don't know, a chapter and a half in.
0: You can see Looks the dog, like ear, the there, dog Julia. ear hair is page 17. Page 17. Yeah. So
2: she made it, I guess, a little bit, a little way into the second chapter, perhaps. Um, And she then proceeded to do an impersonation of the book's language to me that it still cracks me up whenever I think of it. And for background, you should know that my daughter is not straight and has long had a healthy disrespect for any sort of heterosexual love story. (laughs) Even Romeo and Juliet had a hard time winning her over because it was about liking a boy, which to her is just the ultimate silly thing to do. I mean, to be (laughs) fair, that is one of the
0: worst love stories ever written, but (laughs) we can save that for another day.
2: Well, at the time she was trying to play Juliet. So she had to find something to grab onto there. She literally had to find a substitute for like, what if I actually liked a guy? What would that feel like? And she had to substitute something from her real life. Um, but her impersonation of ugly love, and I, I have read enough of it to know which sentence she was parodying, went something like this. His hair was the perfect shade of brown, and I became aroused because it was
0: brown. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I
1: mean, I have to admit that they are not the kind of books that I would ever read if I were not on the clock, Um, partly because of the sort of somewhat generic nature of the characters. I mean, they have their distinguishing characteristics are that they have suffered some past trauma, like their father beat up their mother or their mother just died or they were in this terrible car accident or they we're in a house fire and they have scars on their face so you know they feel like that ruined their acting career and they feel like no one will ever love them you know there's a lot of stuff like that that sort of passes for personality but i mean that is kind of common in, in romance novels in my experience um you know so it's not you know I like i totally understand your your daughter's exasperation with this i think you have to go in really understanding the romance genre and being invested in its tropes and storylines and one of the things i found looking at book talk videos is that there are lots of fans out there who say okay so this is a friends to enemy trope or this is a insta-love trope or this like they're they have names for all of the formulas in the genre and um we'll dispense those at the top so that you know that if you like Friends or enemies to lovers or whatever, uh, you know, whatever the construct is of uh, uh, brother's best friend, you know, romance like that's a a, a, a trope. Um, people have favorites of those. And so they use those as shorthand in recommending books. And the other thing that they do is they just scream and cry. I mean, the, the TikTok videos are really remarkable in how much emotion the people who make them show over their books. You know, sometimes it's just some popular music clip, no speaking at all, but just the, the person in the video showing the book and then pressing it to their heart and nodding, you know, <laughs> about how much they love it um, as they rank the books in the order of their preference. And sometimes it's people, you know, some woman in her car screaming about how hot ugly love is. It should have a warning on it that you need to change your panties three times when you read it, <laughs> you know, that kind of they're so, they're so They're so unlike your typical book recommendation because they're so, um, you know, just about emotion. And uh, I found that really fascinating. Although there are also lots of people on TikTok who are complaining about calling you very much as your daughter did.
0: I mean, I have not read a Coho book yet. I, upon f- reading a little bit past where Dana's daughter abandoned the book, find such sentences as, when the protagonist meets the hot girl, I instantly become aware of my legs and their inability to stand. My mouth forgets how to speak. My arms forget how to reach out to introduce the person they're attached to. My heart forgets to wait and get to know a girl before it starts to claw its way out of my chest to get to her. So a lot going on there. I mean, the the thing that I would ask you about this, there are many times that I have read a book simply because it's the number one to see what the fuss is about. And I think sometimes these books do not demonstrate what fine literary critics such as yourself um, or people who think themselves fans of good writing, such as myself desire in a modern novel but i think about like you know the da vinci code or angels and demons or the twilight series which this seems closer to in some ways like there is an ability to conjure a resting plot and heart turning emotional drama that is i don't know maybe cheap or tawdry but also maybe just like undervalued <laughs> By practitioners of quote unquote literary fiction. Like, you know, I think there sometimes is a bit of a like big collective like sigh and head scratch by um, a certain set of the book world when writing like this becomes ascendant and dominant. And that's obviously happened lots of times. But there is, you know, the, to be. To As you pointed out, you can't just be a master of marketing and have dozens of books that are climbing the bestseller list. You actually have to be producing something that people can respond to in this intense way. So I'm curious how you'd situate this, you know, possibly a literary, literary success in the grand history of extremely popular books that are not very well written or, quote unquote, not very well written, despite their ability to conjure these effects in readers.
1: Well, I don't think that this book is in you know any worse than many very popular books that don't have a particularly. I mean, they're they're fast moving. You know, pe- many of the people who read these they want a hot love story, they want a fast moving plot without a lot of writing sort of interfering with the development. They want sort of slightly snappy dialogue, but not too clever, and a lot of suspense about when will they get together. And then on top of that success, there's all this um, intrigue about whatever the subplot is, or, you know, what, you know, what's the trauma that this person has suffered? What is their dark secret in their past? Is the wife really paralyzed? Or is she faking it? Was she a sociopath? You know, that kind of stuff. There's, there's... It's like there's a lot of redundancy back in, in it. You know, if you're not that engaged in the romance, there's this other storyline that you can find suspenseful. Um, some people seem really invested in um, displaying their contempt for popular literature, and I don't feel that way. I, I just know, looking at this, that that it's not quite my cup of tea. But I'm someone who read all of the the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Books very eagerly because I'm just more interested in murders than romance, and those are also terribly written. So <laughs> I'm not going to get on my high horse about it. I'm just going to say it's it's less my thing than than some of the other stuff that makes the best bestseller list. Yeah, I
2: want to make clear that I'm not interested in uh, in dismissing these books. I want to understand what is that what it is that that makes them. So popular. And the, the the fact that she does write in so many different genres makes it seem as if she hasn't just hit on a formula that works, that she has some actual um, ability to connect with readers emotionally that transcends whatever familiar genre she's writing in.
1: Right. She does not sleep on any of the tricks of the trade, unlike, I would say, the Twilight series, which it really coasts on the reader's investment and whether that couple gets together or not. And the, you know, there's action in those books, but the plotting is not nearly as expert as what Colleen Hoover does. I mean, she, she really writes a tight, popular novel. You know, there's, you can't look at it except for maybe ugly love, which to me just seems to seemed slow moving because I was just not really into all of the sex scenes. Most of them, you know, there's a there's a regular development in the plot that pushes things in this direction or that, and and there's not a lot of padding, and there's there they're not slow spots, and so her her sort of craftsmanship on that level, her narrative craftsmanship is is really strong, and um, and even if the twists are ridiculous, they often, you know, sometimes they are ridiculous, they often are also bold and 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 kind of creative and I think that that is another thing that that you just don't usually get in 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 your standard romance novel like some flip development that turns everything on its head and then you have to realize that everything is actually different than you thought it would be I also wonder
0: I mean I, I part of my earlier question was also not intended to be dismissive but intended to be Like I just think plot, the ability to successfully plot is like the most undervalued literary skill and that people who can create compelling plots can recurringly create compelling plots and can recurringly create very different compelling plots is like, you know, that's not an accident. That's not a joke. And that's like that's 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 legit and and whatever the nature of the sentences i just mockingly read like it seems like this woman has deeply earned her success but i also wonder if there's something going on here with the the way romance readers are intersecting with other forms of popular fiction. Like there's, you know, there's obviously lots of plot-heavy, not super revered genres. There's thriller, there's horror, there's suspense, there's romance. But somehow romance has felt like it's a little bit off in its own corner in terms of the bestseller list for a long time. And like, yeah, Stephen King or, you know, there's these other series that will make it to the top of the charts. But, um, and Twilight, of course, was and, and I guess Fifty Shades were, were some of the earlier incursions of romance into a bigger sense of like, what is an airport book <laughs> in our conversation? But is this part of that trend as well?
1: Oh, definitely. And I, I think that social media has enabled the sort of community of romance readers who buy huge numbers of books and help keep the publishing industry afloat. It's just that it's tended to be a volume thing. And, and this is something that I recently found out about. James Patterson is he's the you know the best selling author in the country or of the past 10 years with by only rarely having a book on the bestseller list because he just produces so many books with co-writers in particular and so it's 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 different with romance because people just kind of the 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 Regular romance readers just burned through so many titles that often no one title was in a position to stand out. Um, I think that with Twilight and Fifty Shades, they, they these were liter- publishing phenomenons yeah. that brought in readers who were not part of the established romance community, and then on social media, they became more outspoken about how they are stigmatized compared to the readers of other pop genres and started to communicate. So when you you see um you know young women on TikTok saying, oh, I just love a um a brother's best friend romance, um I don't know if that's entirely new, but the fact that you would just put a video out there just to any random reader with this kind of tag on it for a, a, a favorite formula, that is that is new just outside for that to be outside of the romance community.
2: All right. Well, if you want to figure out where to start with Colleen Hoover, I advise you to read Laura Miller's great piece on Slate, The Unlikely Author, Who's Absolutely Dominating the Bestseller List. And as we sign off, I will just ask that if anyone out there is on Talk, can you please clutch my book cameraman to your chest and make a video of yourself sobbing about how you had to change your panties three times while reading it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Oh, my goodness. We've already arrived at the endorsements portion of our program. And for once, I don't have to go first because I'm hosting. So, Julia, I'm going to hand it over to you. What do you have to recommend to listeners this week?
0: My endorsement is yet another from the Summer Strut discard pile or the uh, Summer Strut also, also rans almost wases. And I particularly mentioned this one because I noticed also, Dana, that it was on your finalist list but not name-checked list. It's a song called I Wish That I Could See You Soon by Herman Dune. Oh,
2: yes. It was the Jonathan Richmond sound-alike guy.
0: Yes, and it's sort of like a rollicking, sounds like it could have been a folk song, but it wasn't, guy, uh, and then there's this trio of harmonic women i don't know if it's a trio it sounds like a trio i just made that assumption there's an unspecified number of harmonic women that the loping narrator is in kind of a call and response with i wish that
3: i could see you soon the angels go how long till you can see her and i'm like the sooner the better do you really think she will wait
0: for I have no way to say and there's nothing I can do I have no, no way to say, say and there's nothing I can do. And there's also
2: a moment when horns come in, and as we've established, anytime horns sneak into a pop song, it makes me, makes me very happy. It's
0: just a very unusual song. It has a very unusual sonic texture. It's sort of unplaceable historically, and as I've been listening through my long list the last few weeks, it's one of the ones that every time it comes on, I think, "Ooh, love this one. So uh, it's "I wish that I could see you soon by Herman
2: Dune. Nice one. I like that song. I'm happy to be reminded of it. Laura, what have you got for us this week?
1: Well, this isn't brand new, although they do have a new season out. There is this New Zealand uh, comedy series called Wellington Paranormal. It's a spinoff of what we do in the shadows, a spinoff of the original version of that, the, the movie, which was also an kiwi product and there's a couple of cops who appear in in the movie of what we do in the shadows and the the spinoff is how these two cops and their uh sergeant um have launched this special secret division to deal with paranormal threats in, in in wellington new Zealand, and um it is so hilarious and deadpan and um you know they confront all of these sort of ridiculous monster of the week type things like X Files, but but uh, one of the cops is is an idiot, Um and then one of the cops is this complete by the books person, and it's a mockumentary, so she's con she's constantly addressing the camera saying, "Well, we've talked to the bird woman, and we've convinced her that it's not safe for her to do this. We're just going to make sure that everybody gets out of you know." <laughs> she just She has the most ridiculous deadpan officialese way of talking about these crazy things that happen. And the most recent episode, which I completely loved, is called The Coolening. And it's about how they find a leather jacket that whenever someone puts it on, it instantly makes them really cool. And, (laughs) And because it's possessed by a guy who was like a breakdancing champion or something i know at one point one of those break dancing on the top of the police station until the roof falls in and another one steals a motorcycle and they just behave in these completely absurd ways and at a certain point they also meet a pair of possessed pants in a thrift store, and I feel like it's a citation of my favorite Dr. Seuss story, which is about the pale green pants with nobody inside them. Mm -hmm. Um, Very expressive pants floating in the air. Um, I just laugh hysterically at this thing every time I watch it. You can see it on HBO Max, but I think it's also being televised on one of the sort of uh, lower-level... Cable stations like the CW or something like that. And I can't recommend it more highly. Everything, every joke is funnier when it is told in a New Zealand accent.
2: Ah, Wellington Paranormal. I just wrote it down. It sounds a little bit like Flight of the Concords vibes, which is an old love yes, of mine. So exactly, I will certainly, exactly. certainly check yeah. it out. Yeah,
1: you'll love it then.
2: All right, well, I'm going to go full Julia and do a food endorsement this Ooh. week. I feel like you're the queen of the food endorsements. And this is actually a very Julia-pleasing food endorsement because it involves thyme, an herb that we have bonded over before, nothing like fresh thyme, and I think you have an abundance of it in your home garden. Multiple
0: varieties of fresh thyme, Dana. All right,
2: well, here is something new to do with it besides the thyme recipes I've already imparted to you. It is uh, thyme pistachio pesto, which Ooh. is something I came across in a on a cooking blog called Offscript Recipes where I I gather that what this person does, this blogger, is adapt existing famous recipes and add fun things to them because this is an adaptation of Samin Nosrat's buttermilk chicken, right? Classic recipe that people have been making like mad since she publicized it in her book and and show salt, fat, acid, heat. Um, But this is with this pesto that this person has MacGyvered to add onto the buttermilk chicken. And you could completely make the pesto on its own if you're a vegetarian or don't want to make chicken. It's basically just thyme, uh, pistachio, nuts... Olive oil, salt, and lemons, plus some lemon zest. That's all that's in it. You whir it all together in a food processor. We'll put a link to the recipe. And then an interesting thing that you do with this pesto, you don't have to, but you can bake it and with along with the chicken in the recipe, or you could just bake a Yum. tray of it on its own, which gives it this great sort of crusty topping, you know, like a, a, a crusty brown top. Um, It'd be delicious in baked potatoes. It would be amazing on pasta, on just a slice of bread. It's really, really delicious to the point that I now like it better than good old basil pesto that you can find everywhere. Thyme pesto is what it's all about. I think you could do it with another nut as well. If you didn't want to go so pricey as pistachios, I'm sure you could
0: do it with walnuts. We just roll on the ground in pistachios in LA. But Can I ask a practical question? In making basil pesto, which I used to make a lot as a kid and just made for the first time as our basil crop has come in, I made it for the first time in like 20 years. You know, it's a lot of fuss to prepare the leaves. Make sure you take the leaves off the stems and you clean the leaves, this, that, and the other. And thyme leaves are tiny. Is it fussy? I mean, you can kind of strip the time leaves off the stem. Yeah. Are you putting the stem? Are you putting the stem? Like the notion of having enough thyme leaves right. to get <laughs> the kind of juicy paste, like at least the basil leaves, you know, to, you know, to like separate 50 basil leaves, it takes whatever amount of time, but they're like nice big succulent leaves. Like 50 thyme leaves is like a little thimble full. Like, how do you process <laughs> the I mean, time?
2: I, I guess the answer is that you put some of the stems in as well. It doesn't seem arduous when you're doing it. If you get a big pair of kitchen scissors and a handful of time and sort of snip at it until the woody parts are all that's left in your hand, then you can include some of the stems in there, too. You don't want to put the sticks part in that's really the bottom of the but stem. But the little but
0: tender stems can make yeah, it in there. Yeah, I mean, no. right.
2: I all find right. this very easy to make. I mean, you throw this stuff in a blender. It's ready within 15 minutes. If you don't do the baking part, you could just throw it on pasta right then. Anyway, it's summary, It's delicious. It's time pesto. We'll put a <laughs> link for it on our, on our show page this week, along with links to Julia and Laura's recommendations as well. Thank you, Laura Miller, Slate's book critic, for joining us. Oh, it's been a delight. And Julia, thanks to you as always. Especially nice having you in the room.
0: It's so fun to be here.
2: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can also write us anytime at culturefest at slate.com. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Our introductory music is composed by the wonderful composer Nicholas Britell. Our producer is Cameron Drews, and our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Julia Turner and Laura Miller, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.